young father in a supermarket was pushing a shopping cart and had his little son up in the front of that shopping cart. And the little boy was fussing and irritable and crying and just pitching a fit. And the other shoppers gave the pair, this father and this child, they gave them a wide berth, <laughs> you know, to move up and down the aisles because the child would, would pull cans off the shelf and he'd throw them out of the cart. I mean, he was just kind of out of control. And the father seemed to be very calm, though. That was kind of the amazing thing. And as he continued down each aisle, he, you could hear him, the father, murmuring, easy now, Donald. Donald, be patient. Easy, steady, Donald, steady boy, steady, it's going to be all right, Donald. Well, the mother passing by was so impressed by the young father's attitude that she said, you know, you certainly know how to, to talk to an upset child so quietly and so, so gently. And then bending down, the woman to the little boy said, what seems to be the trouble, Donald? Oh no, the father said, he's Henry, I'm Donald. <laughs> Anybody here ever felt like that father? You're trying to say, stay calm, stay calm, be patient, be patient. Well, I think it's safe to say that uh, we all need patience. And if you're going to walk by faith, it's going to require patience. And in our passage today, James addresses this spiritual necessity. We've got this message and one more in the book of James before we finish up. But today, it is uh, a message that I think we all can relate to. The need to wait. The need to be calm. The need for patience. Would you stand with me if you're physically able to do so as we honor the reading of God's Word beginning in verse 7 of James chapter 5. James writes, Be patient. Therefore, brothers, I'll tell you what the therefore is about in a minute. Until the coming of the Lord. That's an important statement. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and latter rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. And behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Lord Jesus, thank you again for your word. Enrich our hearts and our souls, our minds. God calls us to hear it. And then calls us to be, as James would say, doers of it. Not just taking it in, but Father, applying it in every aspect of our life. And today, Father, we all confess we need patience. So Father, teach us how to wait, how to be calm how to experience the patience and the peace that only you can bring into our life. Now, Lord, would you take my study, would you take my words, would you take my mind and my mouth and my heart, all of me, Father, and would you use it for your glory 
as I share your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, these verses are part of what we would call the concluding exhortations uh, of James's letter, and they are meant to encourage us and to unite us to live our faith in light of the coming return of Jesus Christ. And further, in this passage, James returns to a couple of themes that he started with. For example, he returns to his initial theme of trials. You remember we started this, this book on talking about trials and, and how to consider those trials and how to live through those trials. And he returns to that whole, in fact, that's part of the context here. And to understand what he's talking about in the verses that we just read, we do have to understand the context. So the words that he's written to us are set against the context of a couple of things. Number one, that this world is broken. And in this world, a broken world, there's going to be difficulty and there are going to be pains and things, tragedies and storms, literally and spiritually and those kinds of things. There's, we're, it's a broken world. That's part of the context that forms the background of what he's talking about. And the second thing that James repeats in this, uh, these verses is that the Lord is coming. The judge is at the door. The Lord is going to return. The Lord is going to return. It is context. He's putting what he's about to say to us, these encouragements, in the context of the fact that Jesus is going to return. In other words, he's saying, what kind of person ought you be given the fact that the judge is at the door, given the fact that he is going to return? And so he sets these words up against that. And the first thing about the the matters of trials and difficulties, is really to give us perspective, to help us understand that these things aren't going to last. They're temporary. They're a part of a broken world. And the second is to give us hope. In the midst of the difficulties and the trials and the tribulations, there's hope. What is our hope? Our hope is in the return of Jesus Christ. It's why the New Testament church called the return the blessed hope, the blessed hope. They looked forward to the return of Jesus. Why? Because they knew when Jesus came back, the tribulations of life would be over. And so this is the context that he gives us. And no doubt these Christians, given what they were living through and living with, no doubt they were discouraged in their faith. There are some of you who are watching. There are some of you listening by radio and, of course, in this live audience. And if you were honest, you'd probably say, I'm very discouraged in my walk with the Lord. I'm very discouraged because because of the things that are going on in my life. They were weary from their trials and their difficulties. And we get that. We understand that, right? How discouraging they can be sometimes. And that's what the adversary does. He takes these things and, and he beats you up with them. He beats you up with difficulties. He beats you up with, with the trials. He beats you down with the things that will wear you out. And so he... And they, James addresses the, this context that they were in. And amidst that, he gives them four encouragements. I want to share those with you because they'll encourage your heart too. Look at them with me, if you will. Beginning in verse 7, he says, be patient. It is in the imperative. In fact, all of the, his uh, be statements and are in the imperative. That means they're commands. He is saying, do this. this. This is not something that I'm suggesting. Do this. And he says, be patient. Patiently stay put. He's talking about waiting. He's talking about staying where, where you are, not, not panicking. 
So what does it mean to be patient? He says, be patient until the Lord's coming. What What does that mean? Well, it means to do what God is also doing. What is God doing? God is enduring human evil for a season. Did you get that? God is putting up with it for a season. And it means that we are to do the very same thing. We're to be patient. It means we're to wait. We're to not give up. We're to not lose heart. And that's where the therefore comes in. Look there, patient, be patient, therefore. In their particular setting, he says, based on what I just talked about. You see, the problem was that the difficulties that these Christians were facing beyond just pure persecution was that they were suffering at the hands of unscrupulous rich people. And so he says, be patient, therefore, because of what I just said, be patient. This will not last forever. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. James doesn't want them to to give up spiritually, but he wants them and he's encouraging them to be patient, to patiently wait upon God, to endure despite the persecution, despite the affliction that they were facing, because, because Jesus is coming back. Have you ever heard the saying, when the going gets tough, I bet you can finish it, what? The tough get going, right? Well, James is saying, when the going gets tough, the tough stay put. They don't panic. They don't throw in the towel. They stay put. Sometimes it is God's will for us, listen, to go through difficulty, not to get out of the difficulty. I know we don't like to think like that. We think that God always wants us to be delivered from the difficulty. Sometimes God wants to take you through the difficulty. Is there examples of that? There are plenty of examples of that in the Scripture. Noah went through the flood. You think about this. God didn't take him out of the flood. God took him through the flood. Then there was Daniel who was thrown in the lion's den. God took him through the lion's den. He didn't take him out of the lion's den. There were lions in that den. And then there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember that story. God God went with them through the fiery furnace. There are some of you that are listening today that are going through difficulties. And there's a part of you that wants to give up. You're weary, you're worn out from, from the fiery trials of life. Remember James called them fiery trials? And the devil has convinced you that God just doesn't really care about you. And that your faith really doesn't work. Well, let me give you God's word for you today. Wait on God. Stay put. Listen, I don't know who that is for. But God wants me to tell you to wait on him. And not to give up. Not to give in. To stay put. So let me suggest three things to do when the going gets tough. Number one, wait on God and don't panic. Wait on God and don't panic. If you belong to God, put your eyes on Him. Uh, I think about Jehoshaphat. You remember that? Israel was outmanned. Jehoshaphat was leading the people. The people came to him. They were panicked because they were about to be overrun by a much superior military. And they came to him, and you remember he stood before the people, and he was very honest, and he prayed a prayer, and he said, Oh, God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Listen, 
Listen, when the going gets tough, wait on God. Don't panic. Keep your eyes on God. Number two, wait on God and get alone with Him. Seek God's will and God's purpose through His Word and in prayer. Jeremiah 29 verse 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. If you're going through a tough time, don't panic. Then get alone with God. Get alone with God. I think sometimes we don't hear from God because we don't get alone with God. We try to, we try to enjoy fellowship with God when we ought to be alone with God. We try to do it in, in, a, in a group. Now, you say, well, aren't, aren't we doing that right now? This is worship and this is growth. And I'm talking about your personal need to get alone with God. You need this. But you also need to get alone with God. And to seek his face and wait on him. And then third, I would tell you, when the, uh, uh, the going gets tough, wait on God and obey him regardless. You see, when life gets tough, you'll be tempted to compromise. I refer you back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you remember the king came and said, now listen, I like you guys, but the law is that you've got to bow down and worship the idol of the king, him, And you remember what they said, oh, king, you need to know something. We're not trying to pick a fight. Uh, That's a loose translation. We're not trying to pick a fight. But you need to know something. Even, uh, we believe our God can deliver us, but even if he does not, we will not bow down to you. Wow. Even if he doesn't. What were they saying? We're going to obey regardless. When life gets tough, you're going to be tempted to compromise. Don't obey God regardless. James uses the farmer and his crops as as an illustration of patiently waiting. You know, the farmer plants, the farmer cultivates, the the farmer uh, manages his property, his land, and then he waits for the harvest. But here's why he waits, because he knows, even though he can't immediately see any results, he knows that below the ground, what he cannot see, there's something going on. There's something happening. And James says, consider the farmer, when you think about waiting, you say, I don't see anything going on. I'm waiting, and I don't see anything going on. James says, keep on waiting, because though you don't see God, God is at work. Listen, God is at work because God is always working. We're celebrating Christmas. There'll be a lot of vacations taken at Christmas time. There'll be a lot of time off. I'm all for that. But I sure am glad God doesn't. Aren't you? God doesn't take a time. Listen, don't worry about God. He doesn't need it. God's not saying, man, I wish I had a break. I wish I could get a few days off here or there. He doesn't need it. Don't worry about him. And, but praise God, he never takes a break. He's always working. So when you don't see him, just like the farmer, you keep obeying. You do what you know God wants you to do, what he's told you to do. The farmer does. He tills the soil. He plants the crops. He waters and cultivates, and then he waits. But he's still taking care of it, isn't he? He's still working until suddenly it begins to come through. The fruit begins to happen. God is always working. So when, if you're discouraged, you say, I just feel like throwing in the towel. Be patient. Be patient because Jesus is coming. That's going to settle everything. 
But between here and there, you just keep on working. You keep on obeying. You keep on serving. The second thing that I want you to see this morning is not only must we be patient and stand and stay where we are, we must be uh, patient in our position. That is, we patiently stand firm. Verse 8, he says, you also be patient, establish your hearts. Now, what does that phrase, establish your heart, what does that mean? Well, it means to strengthen your heart. How do you strengthen the heart? By truth. It means to have your heart strengthened by what you know is true. It means to believe. It means to live. It means to act on what you know is true, even if you don't see it happening. Why? He says it again, right there, again. Because Jesus is coming back. So you stand, you stand firm. Don't make the mistake that thinking that James is calling us to some kind of passivity. I'm just going to stand here. It's not spiritual laziness. It's not spiritual passivity, but it's a call to action and a call to waiting with resolve, just like the farmer, again, that he has mentioned in his illustration. G. Campbell Morgan said this, waiting for God is not laziness. Waiting for God is not going to sleep. Waiting for God is not the abandonment of effort. Waiting for God means first activity under command. Second, it means readiness for any new command that may come. And third, it means the ability to do nothing until the command is given. Like the first, like the first statement, this statement is also an imperative. It is a command. And that is important because when you are facing difficulties, it is easy for your heart and your mind to forget what's true. Difficulties make you vulnerable. So James says, look, stand, stand firm, stand firm. So how do you strengthen your heart? Well, let me give you a couple of things that will help you strengthen your heart. Number one, decide to accept God's word without exception. Much of our faith, you know, the wobbling of our faith, much of that happens because of not truly trusting what the Bible says. This may shock you a bit, but do you know one of the greatest problems in the church today is biblical illiteracy? You say, what do you mean by that? It, I can read. I can read the Bible. That's not what I'm talking about. Biblical illiteracy means I can read the Scriptures, but I don't receive the Scriptures. So functionally, I'm illiterate, biblically, if I don't take what God says and apply what God says. It's the reason that so many Christians no longer can recognize the truth. Either they do not take the Bible seriously, believing things like, well, here's what I like, and so this is what I believe, and I don't like this, so I don't even, I don't even give it any energy or time. There are many Christians today, it's a sad state in, in many of our churches today that, that we pick and choose what we will obey and pick and choose what we will accept and we reject what doesn't fit. And I have to tell you something, much of that is driven by the culture. Listen, Christian, never let a lost culture tell you what you should believe and how you should live. But isn't it, isn't it tragic how many Christians are following a cultural agenda instead of a biblical agenda? Why? Well, I like when the Bible says it. How many times have I said this in 23 years? How many times have you heard me say, well, I know what the Bible says, 
but. That's a spiritual cop-out. That's just another way of saying, I'm not going to do what it says, even though I know what it says. That's called biblical illiteracy. And it's one of the great problems today in our culture. You've got to understand how important the Word of God is to constructing your worldview. Billy Graham had just begun his evangelistic ministry. One of my favorite stories, he tells his story in his biography, Just As I Am, which if you've not read, you ought to read it, written many years ago. But he had just, been, he had just begun his public ministry. He had traveled at that time all over the world for Youth for Christ, speaking at youth rallies. But now God was about to change that direction. And he had been asked to speak at a conference at Forest Home Conference Center in California. And his friend, William Templeton, I don't have time to tell you all about William Templeton, who left the faith, became an agnostic and a television personality in Canada. Billy Graham always said Templeton should have been the man. He was the man God really wanted to do what Graham did. So you can, you can reject what God's purpose is in your life, but it always is, ends up bad for you. At any rate, so Templeton had gone to a liberal seminary, and they had taught uh, Templeton that the Bible was unreliable and so because he and Graham were so close he began to uh, call into question the scripture and tell Billy that Billy had just believed a whole bunch of stuff that wasn't legitimate and that he should question the authority of scripture and Graham was really wrestling with this and at Forest Home when he wasn't speaking he took a walk in in the woods and he took his Bible and he laid it down on a stump there and he said, God, I can't do this. I can't struggle with this uh, any longer. And he said, Father, I'm going to accept that this is your word. I accept it by faith. And I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts. And I will believe this book to be your inspired word. That was his prayer. After he made that prayer, Graham said, and I quote, I sensed the presence and the power of God as I had not sensed it in months. Not all my questions were answered, but I knew the spiritual battle my soul had been fought and won. He said there was an, uh, an immediate peace and a burden lifted from him. Why? Because he settled the issue. He said, by faith, I'm going to accept your word. I don't have answers for all of it, but I'm going to accept it. I want to tell you something. We're in an age where we need to say once again, I accept it. Whether I understand every jot and tittle of it, I accept it. As your word, by faith, God, I accept it. And therefore, because I accept it, I will obey it. By the way, Graham left Forest Home Conference Center. And two weeks later, he started his what became his springboard event, his L.A. Los Angeles crusade. It was scheduled for three weeks. And it went on for eight weeks because the Spirit of God so moved more than 300,000 people heard the gospel as a result of that. The most significant step you must take to establish your heart is to accept the authority of God's Word. And then second, I would tell you, don't be driven by your emotions if, if you want to establish your hearts. Emotions are not bad. I'm all for them. I, I vote for emotions. Emotions are good but listen don't be driven by your emotions because especially in times of difficulty and trial your emotions will overrule the voice of God 
Your emotions are very powerful. Do you know part of the, our cultural demise today is because we no, longer, we no longer operate by any logic. Everything is by emotion. I feel. I just feel. This is what I feel like. This is, I feel like I'm this, or I feel like I'm this, or, or on and on. And everything is about feeling. And by the way, that's, that logic is, is thrown, out, uh, thrown out the window. I heard a, uh, one of the leading scientists, or at least that's what he's called, in uh, America who came out not too long ago he, and said biology is irrelevant in gender. This is a scientist. And by the way, when he was questioned about that, he became angry and got up and left the interview. Because he didn't have an answer that wasn't emotional. Everything's about emotions. Don't be driven by your emotions. Have emotions. Be, be driven by the truth of God. Then learn to discern. Become so familiar with the truth of God that you can easily recognize the lies of the enemy. You see, the, the devil will feed you a lot of half-truths to confuse you. That's why you've got to be so familiar with the truth of God that you easily and quickly recognize the lies of the enemy. And so you see, a Christian who does not know their Bible is subject to become confused and to be deceived by the spirit of the age. In his book, The Gospel According to Starbucks, Leonard Sweet tells the story of Ed Falbert. Falbert is what is called or referred to as a cupper. Uh, in layman's terms, he's a coffee taster. And his taste buds have, are actually certified by the state of New York. I got the book. I'm just telling you what the book says. His taste buds are certified by the state of New York. I don't know how you get your taste buds certified, do y'all? But Baptists ought to be pros at that. But so refined is Falbert's sense of taste for coffee that even while blindfolded, he can take one sip of a cup of coffee and tell you not just that it is from Guatemala. He can tell you from what state in Guatemala it comes, at what altitude it was grown, and on what mountain it came from. I don't believe that, but... That's what they said. But I do think this. You can train yourself spiritually such that even in the darkness of the age, your spiritual senses can immediately discern and detect the truth of God versus the lies of this world. And that's why, again, it's so important, the word of God is. And then, four, I would tell you, surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit. You choose who or what has control over your life. Does the Spirit of God have control? Or are you really in control and just trying to add a little God in there? The Spirit of God is the secret to victorious living. That's why the Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. It's why Paul writes and says, walk in the spirit and you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. Or do not get drunk with wine, wherein is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. The spirit is the secret to victorious living. Surrender to 
the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, the reason we must strengthen our hearts is to keep, to keep hoping when the delay seems continued, continued and when the delay seems endless. We need to strengthen our hearts to keep trusting when God's timing seems questionable. And we need to strengthen our hearts to keep serving God when the results are a bit negligible. All right. So James tells us, patiently stay put, patiently stand firm, and then third, he tells us, patiently speak right. Patiently speak right. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And, and Jesus said this in John 13, 35. He said, by this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But see, what was going, being communicated here was anything but love. They were grumbling against each other. And so James returns to another theme in his letter. What is it? It is the misuse of the mouth. And he tells them to stop grumbling at each other when they should have kept their mouth shuts, uh, shut and been patient before speaking. Instead, they were grumbling. Literally, the Greek word means they were groaning about each other. We don't know what it was about. We don't know what they were, but it seemed like it had become... And you know, grumbling is contagious, isn't it? Grumbling is contagious. And that's what they were doing. And they were grumbling and groaning against one another. And they were, what they were doing should not have characterized believers. So James says, look, stop grumbling at each other. Especially, he says, because the judge is at the door. In other words, because Jesus is coming back. You see, he keeps coming back to this eye. So what, here's what he's saying. His church needs to be unified, not divided, because he's coming back. And he needs to come back for a united church, not a divided church. And the fact is, grumbling and complaining hinder us from developing patience and endurance, don't they? They were evidently using their mouths to judge one another. And James makes clear that the careless use of their words and their grumbling went against the truth of God. And the righteous judge, he says, you're using that? That's what you're going to do? The judge is at the door. The judge is going to return, and he'll use the same standard with you that you're using with one another. They needed to patiently control their mouths. They needed to speak right, and speaking right requires being patient, right? It means that, that you need to, sometimes you need to put a guard over your mouth. Hello? Hello? How do you do that? How do you speak right? Well, I would tell you, first of all, restrain your mouth from saying everything you think. Right? Some things just don't have to be said to each other. You don't, you don't have to say everything you think. Some years ago, I made the mistake, I guess, probably every pastor and maybe everybody that's ha ever had to speak publicly has made and that is I failed to mention someone recognize someone and following the service a wife of the person that I failed to mention she came up to me and she was daubing her eyes with a with a Kleenex and by the way there were no real tears I I'm serious there were no real tears but she's daubing her eyes sniffling and she looks at me and she says this 
Pastor, why is it that you mention some people and not others? And I, I said, my response was, pardon? And she said, well, you mentioned some people in the service. And she said, you didn't mention my husband. And he was a part of that a few weeks before. I said, well, I didn't know that. And I said, I was able to mention those I mentioned this morning because they told me. I said, but you never told me. And then I looked at her, and she's still daubing her eyes, and I said, may I ask you a question? I said, do you think that I did it on purpose? And when I did, this is unembellished, she went, <laughs> not a tear, not a sniffle. She said, well, no, I don't think you did it on purpose, Pastor. I can tell you that I didn't say what I wanted to say. One of those times, I responded, but I didn't say what I wanted to say. Sometimes less said, better, right? And so James is saying to them, instead of grumbling with one another, restrain your mouth. Number two, determine to use your mouth to encourage. This is, these are encouraging. He's encouraging. He wants them to get it right. Use your mouth to encourage. Everyone is going through something. Did you know that? Everyone's going through something. Brothers and sisters in Christ should be the greatest encouragers on the planet. Ephesians 4.29 Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is as good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Determine to use your mouth to encourage. Our staff prayed this morning, Lord, help us to encourage people on this campus today. Help us, whether it's in a classroom, in, in a hallway, in a parking lot, wherever it may be. Determine, decide, I'm going to use my mouth to be an encourager, not a grumbler. Then third, use your mouth to proclaim God's praise. Now, we got to do that already, right? But it doesn't stop with just the, the worship music. It, you can, you should be praising God throughout your day. Did you know that? Paul said this, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, since the mouth speaks what is in the heart, let your heart be filled with praise to God. It's hard to misuse your words when they are rejoicing in the goodness of God. So be filled with the praise of God. So that means you may have to, you may have to readjust what you set your mind on, right? And which Paul addressed, you know, think on these things, the right things, the pure things. You may have to refocus what you think on so that praise can fill your heart and so that your heart can reflect praise from your lips. Use your mouth to proclaim God's praise. If you want to speak right, listen, saturate your heart with the Spirit of God. That will fill you with praise for God, and your mouth will follow suit. All right? And here's the last thing I share with you this morning. The last thing he tells them, though, is to, is, is to patiently suffer steadfastly. Patiently suffer steadfastly. 
He says in verses 10 and 11, as an example of suffering and patient, brothers, take a look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those, here it is, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And then he uses Job. He says, you, you know about Job. Everybody, Job was a hero to the Jewish heart. He says, you know about Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James is pointing out something to help us remain steadfast and patient when we're facing difficulties. What is it? He's using this Old Testament example. He says, look at Job. Just study Job. If you want to learn patience and suffering, look at Job. Look at the prophets. Most likely, scholars tell us he was thinking first and foremost about Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah suffered greatly as a prophet. So so he's saying, think about the prophets. You need to picture, you need to know, can it be done? Think about Jeremiah. Think about the prophets. Think about Job. You have an example. You have a model. And so when you get discouraged or, 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 or when you think, I can't keep going or I can't go on, this suffering is too great, the trials are too heavy, the difficulties are too much, he says, think about Job, who modeled patience. In suffering. Think about the prophets, Jeremiah, who modeled and demonstrated this incredible capacity for devotion to God without complaining. Now, no suffering is easy, and James is not telling them all, oh, just get over it. It's okay. No suffering is easy, and the Bible never suggests that it is. Or, and the Bible never takes suffering or difficulty in your life lightly. And suffering has a lot of different degrees, right? I mean, and we're not called to enjoy suffering. Never mistake this. Uh, the Bible doesn't call you to enjoy suffering. Well, I'm just I'm, I'm suffering for Jesus, and it's so much fun. I'm, I'm going through this trial, and, and I am so excited about it. I can't wait to find another one. I, uh, I hope I can, I can, I hope something that will test me happens next week because I hadn't been tested in a while. I just look forward to that so much. The Bible never calls you to that. It never counsels you uh, to that. We're not called to enjoy suffering. And the fact is, if we can avoid it without compromising our faith, by all means do so. We see Paul on a couple of occasions in the book of Acts, he's getting out of Dodge. Why? Because if he doesn't, there's going to be suffering and persecution. He's getting out of there. If he can, get away, but don't compromise to do it. Don't compromise the faith to do it. But we can endure patiently, and there are some things that will help us do that. Let me kind of wrap up this message by giving you these things I believe will be helpful to you. We have the testimony of those who've come before us. That's Job. That's the prophet's. It's also what the Bible says in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. And here's the fact. We have the testimony of saints, men and women of God that have gone before us that have endured patiently. And because they have, we can. Because they have, it means it can be done. They've done it. We can too. Here's what what the writer of Hebrews says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance or patience the race that is set before us, 
And then he adds, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility, that's Jesus, against himself, so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. You know what, what is the writer saying to us there? He's saying, look, it's been done, it can be done. And, and he, he gives us this picture of a, like a coliseum filled with saints who have already run the race, and they're there cheering you on, cheering you on. And most, more, uh, most likely, he's talking about the saints of chapter 11. They're sitting in the stands, and they're cheering you on. Go, go, you can do it. You can endure to the finish. And because they've done it, you can do it. We have their testimony. And when you get discouraged, here's what I want to say to you, my dear friend. When you get discouraged because of your difficulties and your trials, pause for a moment and think, wait a minute. This has been done. And it can be done. I can finish the race that God has marked out for me. The second thing that I would give you is we have the promise that God will be with us. Isn't that good? You, you, you don't endure something alone. You have the promise of God to be with you. Isaiah the prophet writes and says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. That's a pretty strong promise, isn't it? What did he say? He didn't... Do you notice this? He did not say you will not go through fire. And he didn't say you will not go through the waters or the floods. But he said when you go through the fire and when you go through the water, I will be with you. Why? Because he said I'll never leave you or forsake you. So just uh, uh, endure patiently because you know it can be done. There's a testimony of others. You have the promise of God. Then third, you have the assurance that it is light and momentary. James is reminding us that when we face it, that is the difficulties, the trials, we are patiently we, uh, uh, to endure knowing that Jesus is coming back. And that means that there will be an end to the test. There will be an end to the trials. There will be an end to the difficulties and the stresses of this broken world. There will be an end it is, Paul said, it is light and momentary affliction. This light and momentary... Now, you have read what Paul went through, didn't you? And he called it light and momentary. So on your, your worst day, remember, in the scheme of Jesus returning, it's light and momentary. Some years ago, I read... Uh, what became a best-selling book titled Tuesdays with Maury. And it's about Detroit sports writer Mitch Albom, and he heard that his favorite college professor, Maury, Maury Swartz, actually, was dying. He had Lou Gehrig's disease. And Albom decided to reach out to this professor and see if they could meet and he had to travel a good ways to meet with him but if they could have weekly meetings and so they began these series of Tuesday morning meetings where where Albom would just ask him various questions and then he wrote the book based on the answers and their conversations in these meetings and in one of their conversations Albom asked Maury this question he says why do you bother 
watching and keeping up with the news since you won't be around to see what, what the outcome is. And Maury offered him this brilliant insight. He said, well, it's, Mitch, it's hard to explain. He said, now that I'm suffering, I feel closer to people who suffer than I ever did before. In fact, the other night on TV, I saw people in Bosnia running across the street, getting fired on, killed, innocent victims, and I just started to cry. I feel their anguish as if it were my own anguish. I don't know any of these people, but how can I put this? It's like because of their suffering, I'm almost drawn to them because of mine. When you think about what Jesus did on the cross for you, it makes sense, doesn't it? We, he was acquainted with our griefs and suffering. The Bible says that he understands your difficulties. He understands your sufferings in a special way because he himself suffered. Isaiah put it this way. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus understands, doesn't he? Jesus understands the difficulties. Jesus understands the stresses, the burdens. He bore our griefs so that we could have his peace. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going away, but he said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And he said, and I'm going to leave you peace he said, my peace I give to you, not peace like the world gives you. See, the peace of the world is emotional. The peace of the world is circumstantial. It comes and it goes. But the peace of God is supernatural. It surpasses all understanding, Paul said. And Jesus said, that's the peace. I've, I've taken your stripes so that you could have my peace and peace with the Father. Do you have that? Today, the Advent is about peace. The Prince of Peace is the only one who can deliver the gift of spiritual peace to your soul. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Lord Jesus, thank you for that peace that came into the world through you 2,000 years ago on the cross being born to bear our iniquities. We thank you. And Lord, I pray for any that are hearing my voice 
whatever medium, radio or television or live stream or right here in this live audience that have never, never really made peace with you, that today they would make peace with you so that they could have peace with God, so that they could have eternal peace. Well, Father, would you move before we're gone in these moments? We ask it and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me for our invitation? As always, I'll be here at the front. I want to invite you to slip out or staff or on the sides. and Maybe you say, I need peace with God. You come. We'll help you do that. We'll take care of it. You say, I don't know what to do. Just come and take one of us by the hand and we'll help you with that. Maybe you're here and you say, you know what? I have peace with God. What I need is I need a, I need a church home, a church family. And you do. If you don't have one, you come on. And say, Pastor, I want to join Ridgecrest. Maybe, maybe you need to obey him. In the next service, I'm going to baptize a young man who trusted Christ recently. We won't baptize you then, but maybe you've never been scripturally baptized. You need to obey God in that. So you come and say, I want to set that up. And we'll take care of setting that up for you. It's important that you not miss what God wants to do right now before we're gone. Are you ready? As Brother Aaron leads us. You